<clears throat> well, 32 years of ministry, and I've never been out, outranked by a septic system. So, I mean, there's a first time for everything, I guess. Um, <clears throat> also, I was thinking, and I was talking to my wife, we have, uh, we fell in love with Alaska, I think it was about 10 years ago. I've been coming up here uh, for a number of years. I think it's my eighth or ninth trip, and uh, we always suspected that Alaska was heaven, but after coming to your church this morning and having bacon at church, that confirms it. Alaska is, this is, I am in heaven, so this is good. Well, uh, I do want to thank Mark uh, for letting us come up. It's uh, a real privilege and uh, an honor. We've loved being with you guys. I hope if you haven't been able to hear uh, all of the sessions that you'll go to either the church website or the Not By Works website and uh, check those out. Um, we want to thank you especially for praying for our family. I think um, some of you know uh, that we had scheduled this conference over two years ago, and then we had a family crisis that prevented us from coming at the last minute, and you guys were so gracious, so I would expect nothing less, of course, with a church where Mark is the pastor, but you were so uh, wonderful and prayed for us, and, and then uh, we rescheduled it, and then, of course, the pandemic hit, and so we've had to reschedule it three times. And, uh, but the Lord's timing is always perfect. None of this surprised him. And so here we are. And it has been a real uh, delight. And so this morning we are finishing up essentially four uh, messages that I've done, uh, two last night and now two this morning, on Spirit of the Antichrist. And I didn't bring the DVD set up here, but uh, we do have the full 18 videos, 14 hours worth of uh, material on 10 different discs at the table there. I know several of you have already picked that up. And if you're not a DVD person, which a lot of people aren't these days, if you'd rather just download the, the, the video files, you can also get those as a, a download. But what I've tried to do is to compress, essentially, uh, all of the material and some highlights from it into these four sessions. But I wanted to leave us in this uh, conference with some... Uh, so what questions? You know, what, what do we do with this information? As some of you have heard and commented, you know, this is some pretty heavy stuff as we think about Satan's attempt to take over the world and the cosmic struggle that's going on in the unseen realm, Ephesians 6. Uh, how do we respond to that? And so I want to just uh, take us to uh, the, the, the issue of how we can avoid deception. What are some telltale signs? And as I teased a little bit in our first hour, you know, Satan is not creative. Uh, he's pretty much a Johnny One Note, and he's been using the same techniques uh, to try to deceive the world for 6,000 years. And once you kind of understand his MO, then you can see it coming uh, a, little more, uh, a little more easily. So uh, I want us to start by kind of reviewing the premise of this whole series, which is from uh, 1 John, the book of 1 John. And it says in chapter 4 that uh, the, the spirit of the Antichrist, capital A, which you've heard is coming, and he is. He is variously referred to in Scripture as the man of sin, the son of perdition, the beast, the little horn, all of those different terminologies in the Old and New Testaments alike that refer to this future world tyrant who will rule the world under the power of Satan. He is coming. John knew this. John was writing here in the early 90s A.D., one of the last books in the New Testament written chronologically. But he says, you've heard he's coming, but you need to understand uh, this spirit is now already in the world. 
And so I got to thinking, if the spirit of the Antichrist, the future Antichrist, is already in the world, we ought to be seeing some of his characteristics that are clearly outlined in Scripture unfolding before our eyes. And certainly we do see this for the last 2,000 years. But then I further began to speculate that because we do not know the day of the rapture, the doctrine of the rapture is imminent, it can happen at any time, uh, then all we can do is sort of gauge the, uh, the degree to which some of these characteristics of the Antichrist are already unfolding before our very eyes. And if we see an uptick in them, we might could say, well, we're probably getting uh, close. And so uh, John also tells us in chapter 2 that many Antichrists have come, and that's how we know it's the last hour. Paul says the mystery of lawlessness, talking here in 2 Thessalonians 2 about the Antichrist, is already at work. And so all I did was sort of distill down, as we've seen in the first three sessions, seven uh, prominent characteristics of the Antichrist that will characterize his actions and deeds during the future seven-year tribulation, and then see if those seven characteristics are becoming prominent today. Are we seeing an uptick in things like a pride and power and pretense and phenomenalistic uh, activity and things? And we absolutely are. And so... Uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 4 that in the latter times some will depart from the faith and the nature of that departure will be that they are giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So there is a great last day's deception and uh, we are living in the midst of it. Paul tells us that in the last days perilous times will come. In the first session I established the biblical truth that the phrase last days refers to the present church age, this 2,000 year period that we are in the midst of. Uh, a lot of times people confuse the last days and the end times. The end times is that 16% of biblical prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Starts with the rapture and goes all the way through the unveiling of the Antichrist, the tribulation, the second coming, the kingdom, and everything associated with those end times events. But the last days is right now. In the panoramic view of biblical history, we are living in the last age before the kingdom is going to come. And uh, what a blessing that is to live in that age. And Paul reminds us just before he died in the last letter that he wrote that perilous times uh, will come. Going back to 2 Thessalonians 2, we know that Satan's power is going, or that the Antichrist's power is going to include all kinds of power signs and lying wonders. That he is the great deceiver. He's going to use all unrighteous deception to try to deceive the world. So we've characterized this as the Luciferian conspiracy. A conspiracy is any two or more people or things working together for nefarious means. The Luciferian conspiracy is pretty well spelled out in Scripture. It involves Satan, his demons, and human agents to try to deceive the world and take over the world. There is a spiritual battle taking place. It's not a flesh and blood battle, but it's a battle of principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we talked about those seven manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist, which include uh, pretense, phenomena, pride, power, persecution, perversion, pluralism, and the like. But this morning I want to talk about how we can guard against that spirit of pretense. How can we recognize and hedge ourselves against uh, deception? I call this the anatomy of deception. And I want to ask you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I am going to put the verses on the screen, but you may want to make a few notes or follow along, underline some things in your own uh, Bibles. But we go back to Genesis 3, and that's where the battle really began. Satan was kicked out of heaven, banished to the earth, couldn't have heaven for his domain, so he sought to have uh, the earth. And when we read, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God 
had made. We know from comparing Scripture with Scripture that the serpent is obviously Satan. And the Bible tells us he was cunning. That's the Hebrew word arum, and it's uh, used 11 times in the Old Testament. Interestingly, arum is sometimes translated prudent, so it can have a positive connotation, meaning sort of uh, wise. But often it refers to more of a shrewdness, a craftiness. It's not evil in and of itself to be shrewd and wise, but when you use your wisdom in a deceptive sense to deceive people, then it crosses a line. And that's what we read that Satan was doing. He was more cunning than any beast of the field. Now, it's interesting. You wouldn't necessarily see this in our English translation, but I believe there is a play on words that takes place in the Hebrew text between Genesis 3.1, where we're told that Satan is arum, cunning, and uh, the fact that Adam and Eve, we are told, were naked, or arumim, very similar word, just with the plural ending, uh, naked. And so basically uh, their nakedness represented the fact that they were innocent, they were oblivious to evil, they were blind to where the traps might lay. There was no sin in the world at that point. Whereas Satan did and would use his arum, his craftiness, to take advantage of their arumim, their ignorance. And of course this tempter is Satan. We know this from looking at Genesis chapter 12, that serpent of old who is called the devil and who is deceiving the whole world. So the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. The fact that Satan manifested himself in that time as a snake suggests that temptation comes in disguise. It comes often quite unexpectedly. Uh, you know, this was a time before sin had entered the world, before the curse of sin had taken over the world, and Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship and harmony with animals. It wasn't necessarily anything unusual for a serpent to come up to them. It was a disguise. We also can speculate that deception often comes from a subordinate, someone over whom one should have exercised dominion, as God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28 that they could. We also know that, according to ancient Near Eastern literature, that pagan religions uh, actually worship snakes. The snake was a symbol of their worship, a symbol of, of, of something that they gave homage to. So God's Word, I think here, written, of course, after you know the, the earth was created 6,000 years ago. So these events that Moses is writing about occurred roughly 6,000 years ago, but he didn't write them down until 1446 B.C., and uh, so roughly 3,500 years ago. But uh, what God's Word is reminding us is that a pagan's symbol of life, the serpent, which is what they saw as a symbol of life that they worshipped, is in fact the cause of death. And so you see a lot right here at the beginning of how Satan turns 180 degrees opposite everything that God is, everything that God stands for, everything that God created. Where God is light, Satan is darkness. Where God is life, Satan is death. Where God is good, Satan is evil. Where God is, uh, where God's people are innocent, Satan is crafty and deceitful. Uh, divinity is not achieved, which is the promise that we see Satan offering here, and uh, what he also offered Christ in the temptation, by following pagan beliefs and symbols. Uh, we, we find life only through God our Creator. John tells us all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made in him was life. And that life is the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John in his letters in 1 John 5 said, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 
And he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. See, Satan is the author of death. And that's why as we trace both the biblical conspiracy of Satan and the, the historical evidence of the Luciferian conspiracy, we see how much they love death. And they're all about killing people. If you watch a part six of my What in the World is Going On series, which is available on the Not Works website, you can just stream it right from there. Uh, you'll find out how many times, just in our own country, in our short 240 some odd years of history, that those that are really pulling the strings of power have tried to kill us. They love death. This is nothing new. It's been going on for 6,000 years. But if we uh, go back and examine more closely what happened in Genesis chapter 3, we find essentially five core components of deception, what I, as I mentioned, call the anatomy of deception, or what is Satan's MO? What is his uh, battle plan? And all of the origin of deception can be traced all the way back to this moment in the garden. So the first thing, the first step in his fivefold method of operation is to question truth. To question truth. Satan questioned God's word. And he is trying to get Adam and Eve to think that God's word which today God's word is embodied in the written and errant word of God, what we call the Bible, but at the time it was God's spoken word to Adam and Eve, that he was trying to get them to think it was questionable. Notice what he said. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, has God indeed said? Did God really say that? He's trying to get them to question God. Can we really trust God's word? Can we really trust anything? <laughs> Is there truth? I mean, at the heart of Satan's question is what Pilate uh, would, would echo you know, some 4,000 years later when he said to Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? So it all begins with questioning truth. This is Satan's battle plan. It plants the seed that God's word, today that's the Bible, is questionable. And Satan planted that seed of doubt in Eve and deception always begins with that seed of doubt. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And so the second step then, as we read on, is to misrepresent truth. Starts by questioning truth and suggesting that God's word is questionable, but then he, he misrepresented it uh, by saying that essentially truth is a matter of opinion. Notice what he goes on to say. Has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, if you know your Bible, is that what God really told Adam and Eve? Is that what God said? Not at all. Let's look at what God said. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, except for one that's dangerous. And he warned them against it. He said, Don't eat it, because in that day that you eat of that one, you will die. So Eve, influenced by Satan's misrepresentation of the truth, likewise misrepresented the truth of God's word in the answer. Satan says, has God really said you can't eat of, it, uh, of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to, to the serpent, Eve said to the serpent, uh, well, he said, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not Eat, nor shall you touch it. Again, is that what God said? 
he misrepresented God's word. She followed Satan's lead. She played right into his hand. Again, let's look at what God said. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Nothing in there about touching it. And yet that's what Eve said that God had told her. So she misrepresented <coughs> truth. And she also, uh, Satan misrepresented it. Eve picked up on it. Then Eve, furthermore, <coughs> downplayed the consequence. I mean, he's already only two steps into his MO, and he's got her literally eating right out of his hand, you might say. Right? He, she's following right along in his footsteps. He set the trap. The snare was laid, and she's falling right into it. She misrepresented the truth by saying that God said you can't touch it. And she also downplayed the consequence. Notice she said, God said you shall not eat nor touch it lest you die. <clears throat> lest you die. Is that what God said? Did God say, you know, don't eat it, don't touch it, because you might die. That's what lest you die means. No, no, God didn't say that at all. God could not have been more clear. He said, when you eat of it, you will surely die. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You will surely die. So already, you just two steps in, and we begin to see how Satan, the author of confusion, is, is leading Eve, and by extension, all of humanity, down this path of deception. The second step is to misrepresent the truth, to make it broader, less precise, open to interpretation, subject to opinion. So truth is a matter of opinion. Truth is a matter of opinion. That's what Satan is suggesting. So the quest for deception always starts by questioning truth and then misrepresenting truth. It makes truth a moving target, able to be manipulated, able to be spun, a matter of opinion. But then we see a third step in Satan's MO, and that is to directly, defiantly contradict truth. And that's exactly what Satan says. When Eve said in the day that you, that God said in the day you eat or touch it, you, you, you might die, the serpent came back and countered with, you will not surely die. <clears throat> that is a direct contradiction of what God said. God said you will surely die. Satan says you will not surely die. He blatantly negated the penalty of death that God had given. Satan, as Jesus tells us, is a liar from the beginning. And this is his lie. His lie is that you can sin and have no consequence. But death is the penalty for sin, as we saw in Genesis 2.17. Jesus said the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. In the context here, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees after the woman caught in adultery. A little bit earlier in that same context, Jesus has said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. The more you know the truth, the more easily you will recognize a lie. And Eve's mind was clouded with confusion. She was following the traps set by the devil and she uh, had 
misrepresented the truth, and so then Satan jumped in with step three and just directly, blatantly contradicted uh, God's word. If you go back to 1 John, where we started, we read, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. As we said, Satan is the polar opposite of God. And where God is truth, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Satan is a liar. The word uh, uh, to deceive is the word planao in uh, Greek. It means to lead astray or to cause to wander. The Greek New Testament uses this word 39 uh, times. And uh, the word lie is the word pseudos. It's used nine times and always translated lie in, in all nine cases, at least in the New King James. And it refers to obviously a falsehood or deceit. It's where we get the English word pseudo, a cognate. Uh, in English, the P is silent, you know, like psychology. And in, in Greek, it's pseudos, pseudos to be exact. And it's uh, where we get the word pseudo, like pseudoscience is not real science. It's false science. But in English, the word has taken on more of a benign meaning, similar to incorrect, you know. <clears throat> but pseudos in Greek speaks of intentional deception, intentional planao. It's something that is not merely inaccurate. It is blatantly, intentionally, willfully wrong. And in reality, <clears throat> if we uh, were to apply that word pseudo in its original lexical meaning to pseudoscience, then we might actually have a better meaning of pseudoscience today because as I demonstrate in part three of what in the world is going on, pseudoscience is deceitful science. It's agenda-driven science. It's bought and paid for science. It's not about what it's about. And it is false science. So he questioned the truth. <clears throat> Has God indeed said? Then he misrepresented the truth. And then he directly contradicted the truth. Basically, what Satan was saying is that death and judgment are an illusion. Eve should have immediately corrected Satan when he contradicted the truth. But she sat passively by, mesmerized, you might say, under this demonic moment. She essentially implicitly agreed with this falsehood when she should have disagreed to agree. You know, we, we hear the phrase all the time, well, we'll just agree to disagree. I can't stand that phrase. Every time someone says it, I want to punch them in the nose, you know. But uh, what we need are more people willing with the courage to disagree to agree. That's what we need. We need people to stand up for uh, what's right. Now, you may be entitled to your opinion, but no one is entitled to be wrong. You're allowed to be wrong. But error or falsehood or lies are not an entitlement. And we have far too little exposing of lies today. And to, to, to not speak out against a lie is to implicitly affirm it. And by the way, it's never the loving thing to do to affirm a lie. It is never the loving thing to do to affirm a lie. So God's word certainly does not suggest that death and judgment are an illusion, the way Satan suggested they are when he said you will surely not die if you sin against a holy God. God's word is pretty clear on the matter. The wages of sin is death. <laughs> For those who fail to receive the free gift of eternal life, you better believe there's judgment. Justice will 
uh, prevail. Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. I'll tell you who you should be afraid of. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. In other words, fear the one who always does exactly what he says he's going to do. There's no equivocation with God. There's no changing, no, uh, oops, I didn't really mean that, or I changed my mind. God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. And when God warned Adam and Eve out of love, after giving them the entire garden, but said, hey, I love you so much, I love our fellowship, I want to protect you, so don't go over and eat from this tree, because you will die. And as I mentioned Thursday night in our sessions on the gospel, at that moment, you, you know, you, 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 it's as if people think that in that moment, God should have said, oh, don't worry, never mind, forget that death thing that I mentioned, I was just kidding, don't worry about it, everybody makes mistakes, no harm, no foul, just forget it. That's what people think implicitly, whether they articulate it that way or not, that God should have done. Anytime they say, God's not fair for sending someone to hell, that's what they're saying. First of all, God's not sending anyone to hell. God's trying to keep everyone out of hell. That's what God's doing. We are sending ourselves to hell by not obeying and listening to his warning. And, and if God in that moment had said to Adam and Eve, oh, don't worry about it, everybody makes mistakes, forget that death thing, God would have proven himself to be a fickle, unfaithful, untrustworthy, lying God. So I don't know about you, but I'm glad he didn't say that. Because I want a God I can trust. I want a God who's true to his word. And so God, God's word was true. But thankfully, God didn't stop there, although he certainly could have. He's God, he's sovereign, he, he has that right. But he took the unbelievable step of grace and mercy to then help his creation, you and me, get out of the predicament that we created. Again, God sends nobody to hell. It's because of God that we're being rescued from hell. And again, don't think that God should have winked and nodded at sin. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. No big deal. Because a God who winks and nods at sin is a liar. And I don't want to worship a liar or depend on my eternal destiny in the hands of a liar. I want a God I can trust. So God didn't lie. Satan lied. God uh, did not lie. And those who fail to receive from God the remedy for their sinfulness by placing their faith in the one who took that penalty on himself, paid our sin debt, rose from the dead, purchasing life with his own blood and offering that life freely to anyone who will receive it by, by faith. Those who don't do that, they're going to spend eternity separated from God in a literal place of torment. They're going to find themselves standing at the great white throne someday and uh, there will be no place found for them in heaven. They're going to be trying to enter heaven based on a bunch of books where they've recorded all their good deeds as if God grades on the curb like we talked about Thursday night, which he doesn't. It's not about uh, being in the top 99th percentile or being better than most. It's about being perfect. So no matter how many truckloads full of books that you've written down all your good deeds in, you can produce at that moment. If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, which can only happen by faith, then when you stand before God and your name's not in the Lamb's book of life, you will face an eternity separated from God. And anyone not found written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into the lake of fire. 
Now, I get into all of these end times judgments that the Bible talks about in my chart book. If you're interested in studying more about that, uh, you might take a look at that uh, over there. But when Satan said, you will not surely die, that was the part and parcel of the lie. That was the, the quintessential lie. He's got a method of operation. He's very subtle. He hasn't changed his MO. It's still working the same way today. But when you get to step three, he has directly contradicted the truth, and that is the essence of the lie. But he doesn't stop there. He then moves on to shifting the focus from truth to perception. And the pathway to deception always includes a shift in focus. It is much more obvious today to anyone who's paying attention in this postmodern age where it's all about perception, where uh, virtual reality has replaced reality where form has replaced function, where style has replaced substance, where the makeup artist makes more money than the teleprompter reader in media. Because it's not about the content, it's about the image. It's about the substance. And notice how Satan follows that pattern even uh, many millennia ago at the beginning of time. For God knows, he said, for God knows you will be like him, knowing good. And evil. In other words, he, he begins to question God's motive. He gets behind and underneath the words that God said and assigns motive, getting into the mind of God, allegedly, because perception is more important than reality. What God said is not the issue, Satan is suggesting. It's what God meant. And God had these ulterior motives. God just didn't want you to become like him. So God's a sneaky God. He was just trying to, to get you to, 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 uh, you know, to prevent you from having what he has. Perception is more important than reality. But is that really why God said what he said? Is that why God issued the warning to Adam and Eve? No, the text is pretty clear. God issued the warning because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He was trying to protect Adam and Eve. So we see this shift in the focus from truth to perception. Reality does not matter. Perception is more important than reality. Facts don't matter. And this is, the, this is really one of the many reasons I believe we are rapidly approaching the end game and that shift back into a satanic, globalist, one-world uh, system. Because uh, all around us, people that are otherwise intelligent people that should know better, engineers, doctors, scientists, lawyers, people that are educated, they're not dumb people, but they are making dumb arguments that have no basis in reality because we've become conditioned to think that what matters is perceptions. Again, it's style over substance. It's speculation rather than empirical evidence. People have little use for facts anymore. It makes it difficult to argue it makes it difficult to make points. It makes it difficult to pastor, frankly, in most uh, places because uh, people there, there's no true north that people can anchor themselves to. And so as you begin to make logical arguments that 2 plus 2 is 4, people are not interested in the facts. They're interested in the perception. These days it's extremely difficult to look beyond the presentation the style, to the facts of the matter. 
But as one of our founding fathers, John Adams, pointed out, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, wrote in uh, the Boscombe Valley Mystery, there is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. He was a man before his time. He was a man before his time. And then uh, conservative pundit Ben Shapiro put it pretty bluntly, facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> and I think he's right. We've got to keep the focus on truth, on facts, not uh, have this overly massive concern for feelings and perception. You know, and when you think about it, aren't you glad that Joseph uh, was less concerned with perception and more concerned with reality when he discovered that his betrothed wife Mary was pregnant? Oh, now, now what do I do? People are going to think this. They're going to think that. They're going to assume this. I better put him away. But he anchored his actions in the truth that the angel of the Lord told him. And he acted accordingly. Very, very difficult today, by the time you get to this fourth step in Satan's M.O., very, very difficult to strip away the feelings, the emotions, the perception, and stand firm on the truth. And uh, today we live in a day when uh, people are much more concerned with perception than reality. But the final step in the pathway to deception is to essentially invent entirely new meaning for truth. So he's already planted the seeds of doubt by questioning the truth. Uh, he misrepresented the truth. Uh, God said you can't eat from any trees. Then he directly contradicted it. Oh, you'll not, you're not going to die. And then he got into the perception. Well, God's just pulling a fast one on you. Here's why God said this. Let me psychoanalyze God for you, Adam and Eve, and explain why you're, he doesn't want you to eat from that one tree. But then, having chiseled away from all different angles at truth, he starts fresh and simply makes stuff up. Satan redefined the plain meaning of God's word to suit his own needs. In other words, words have no meaning, is what he implied. Because he said, with no basis in any record of what God said, that God said, or God meant, you will be like him. You will be like God. God didn't say anything remotely like you will be like me. I mean, you can't even try to get it implied in what God said. God said, don't eat the tree because it'll kill you. And we know from comparing Scripture to Scripture that God did that out of love because God is love. And we could certainly make a reasonable guess at his, you know, the implications of why he said that, because he loved you. you know, why else would someone say, hey, don't, you know, don't eat that tree or if that fruit, it might kill you. Uh, so we can, you know, make reasonable assumptions about uh, a conversation, but there's no reasonable way to get from don't eat the tree or it'll kill you to I don't want you to be like me. That's a complete and utter fabrication. In other words, Satan invented a new meaning to God's word. Satan said that when God said, if you eat it, you will die, what he really meant was, if you eat it, you'll be like me. He's literally making stuff up. And the great last day's deception that is intensifying every day as Satan and his co-conspirators seek to take over the world is perhaps most profoundly seen in its attack 
on language. Uh, we've talked a lot about how God, uh, how Satan is attacking the very core image of God in man. That he's, he's attacked gender, he's attacked life with the eugenics and abortion movements, and, uh, you know, he's, uh, uh, he, he's trying to come at everything that God is. Well, one of those attacks, one of those frontiers that Satan is trying to conquer is language. Because often people forget how fundamental language is to humanity. Uh, you know, you read your seventh grade biology textbook and you're told that language was a creation of mankind that after he crawled out of the caves after millions of years and eventually got smart enough, he was able to figure out language and come up with a means of communication called language. In other words, Satan, as true to form, says just the opposite of what is true. Satan says man came first, then language. God says, nope, language came first, then man. God spoke the world into existence using language. He didn't create man till the sixth day. So language came first. Language is fundamental. That's the reason John's gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so Satan is trying to attack language and the very meaning of words. In fact, that's one reason that the atheistic German philosopher Nietzsche said, I fear we're not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar. He understood if you can get rid of grammar, for it's game over. You cannot communicate at all. So it's, a, it's called uh, reader response communication, where the author or the listener, I mean the author or the writer or the speaker does not have any control over what meaning is. Meaning, they say, resides with the reader or the listener. And this is a fundamental philosophical issue right now. It's been going on for decades in higher education. Journals are written about it. Entire books are written about it, about where does meaning reside. Does meaning reside with the words on the page, or does meaning reside over here with the listener? Where is leaning, uh, meaning? And sometimes they say, oh, it's, it's kind of this dance, this interpretive dance between the, the listener and the words. And, but no, no, the biblical concept is that it's, it resides over here with the listener. I mean, sorry, with the words on the page. It has to. Sorry. I'm so, so confused, confusing myself. Um, it, has to, it has to reside with the words on the page. It has to reside with the speaker. I mean, think about the utter chaos. In fact, we don't have to think about it. We can watch it. But just logically, think about the utter chaos that would ensue if if meaning resided over here with the listener. So the teacher in math class puts a problem on the test that says 2 plus 2, and the student writes 5, and the teacher marks it wrong. I know this illustration is a little outdated because, you know, with Common Core and stuff like that today, this really wouldn't make sense. But in real math, uh, the, t the student puts 5, so the teacher marks it wrong. The student gets his paper graded back and he sees that and he walks up to the teacher and says, I have a problem. You marked this, this question wrong. And the teacher says, well, yeah, it's 2 plus 2. You put 5. That's wrong. The student says, no, I know you said 2 plus 2, but I thought what you meant was 2 plus 3. So I get to determine meaning. Or you walk up to a restaurant at uh, McDonald's and you order a Big Mac and a large fry. And the clerk gives you a filet of fish and an apple pie. And you say, oh, excuse me, 
I paid for a Big Mac and a large fry. And, well, I know you said Big Mac and large fry, but I get to determine the meaning. And when you said Big Mac and large fry, what I thought you meant was filet of fish and an apple pie. Utter chaos. You cannot communicate that way. You absolutely cannot communicate that way. And that's exactly what Satan did. God said this, but here's what he really meant. It's reader response. But meaning always resides with the original speaker or author. So this has implications for political correctness. It has implications all across the board. When people say, you said X, Y, Z, and it hurt my feelings because what you really meant was this. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, there are intentionally mean things that people say. They can be unloving and unkind, and we shouldn't be that. And we know if we're being unloving or unkind. We know our heart. God judges our motives. But you don't get to tell me uh, or anyone else what their motive is. You know, meaning resides with the author. And so now we're getting into, and we see this already being rolled out in other countries and in some parts of this country, thought police, pre-crime, you know, social credit scores, uh, censorship on social media. If you say something, you know, you're going to get banished. We've been banished from YouTube because we simply quoted reputable scientific sources like the CDC and the FDA. Not that they're reputable, but from the evil side, the dark side, they should be perceived as reputable. But they don't want you to quote the things that don't go with the narrative from those government sources. They want you to only parrot the narrative. So when you're quoting Journal of Medical, uh, JAMA articles and Lancet articles and New England Journal of Medicine articles and things like that that go against the, the, the narrative and Big Pharma, then they're going to banish you and uh, call you names and, and those kinds of things. So the final step in the anatomy of deception is to invent new meaning for truth so that words have no meaning whatsoever. And once we get to the point where words have no intrinsic meaning, it's game over. It's game over. So how do we guard then against this spirit of pretense? Well, it starts by understanding this anatomy, understanding this process, seeing the subtleties of this progression and, but then it, it moves on to following the advice of God's word. Again, we go back to uh, 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. It's not just a good idea to study the topic of deception and be aware of the lies around us. It's a command. It's a command. Do, uh, uh, you know, do not believe. That's a command. Test the spirits. That's a command in Greek. Um, so we're told in 1 Thessalonians to test all things, you know, to test all things. Ephesians 5 is a great passage, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where he says, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Again, seeing that contrast between God and Satan. Walk as children of the light, finding out, it's the same word as test, by the way, in Greek, dokimatso, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. We're commanded here, walk is a command in Greek, we're commanded to walk as children of the light, finding out the truth. So a lot of people prefer to stick their head in the sand. They don't want to look behind the curtain, whatever metaphor you want to use. We don't really have an option. We are commanded to search for the truth. Now, I understand it can be distasteful, it can be disheartening, it can be sometimes even terrorizing. But fear is not of the Lord. We've not been given a spirit of fear. We're never to be scared, but we are to be prepared that's the biblical command. And you can't be prepared if you're afraid to look at reality. Um, 
and uh, we're commanded to test all things. That's really the remedy for deception, is to know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And to examine all that we see coming at us in this world through the lens uh, of Scripture. In John's day, in the late first century, the issue was the deity of Christ. Uh, uh, he says, you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. The uh, Spirit of the Antichrist has been at work for at least 2,000 years. Once God unveiled the written word of the New Testament, Satan then stole his playbook, you know, the way the Patriots do every season. It's the reason they win the Super Bowl so much. <laughs> and, and, and he stole the playbook, and then he looked at it, and so then he created this, you know, candidate for the Antichrist in every age that he can indwell. I believe he's going to indwell the Antichrist and uh, be ready to step in because that spirit is already in the world, as John tells us. But we need to remember, as John says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, that we are on the winning team. We're of God. We're a child of God if we've trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone uh, for salvation. And uh, we know that the whole world, by contrast to believers, lies under the sway of uh, the wicked one. And so the way to distinguish truth from error is to compare it with what the Bible teaches. That's why it's so important to be in a Bible teaching church like Pioneer Baptist. And I know you're thankful for your pastor. Well, before I close, let me just mention a couple of things, and then I'll turn it over to Pastor Mark. As I mentioned, the full 18-video uh, series that goes into much greater detail about all of the characteristics that we see today uh, preparing the way for the Antichrist is available uh, as either a DVD set or download. I want to mention our two newest books uh, uh, on a completely different subject, but one of them is Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell and The One Reason No One Ever Has to. And then uh, my devotional book, Weekly Words of Life, is a great little short devotion. Each one's only a page or two. You can read it in just a minute or so. But the idea is you have 52 weeks in a year, 52 devotionals each week. You start out by reading that devotional and read it again every day. It comes from a passage of Scripture. And, uh, and then you meditate on that each week. And uh, just a really uh, encouraging little uh, a processor booklet. Well, thank you for letting us come. Shall I close us in prayer and then turn it over to you? Or you, you want to close us in prayer? Uh, no, what I wanted to say is I want to apologize. We do not know what happened to his microphone. Did the so, mic go out? I, yes, it is, is it out right now? Yes. Oh. And so we were scrambling and we were trying to figure it out. And we had a few different options. One was to interrupt you and like, start playing around on with your microphone while you're talking, which would be horrible. Or the other option would be go up there with the mic, this mic, but then you got to be like right on it. And I was like, I, I never even it. noticed. I hope you could hear me. It was a really great sermon. <laughs> in, ca in case you missed it. So um, I, I already texted you asking for the good news is he's recording on his laptop also. So we have a backup. So thank you, Lord. So what that means to our live stream audience is you're going to notice that the audio kicked out. And if you have other people that you're trying to share this message with, what that means is instead of going to the live stream tab, the past live stream tab, we, we'll get it up later this afternoon, this evening. Just put, go under the conference section under uh, 2021 and scroll down past the other messages. And it'll be on there with the slides and the audio. And you'll even get to see a little picture of his face. And, uh, or just go to notbyworks.org. Yeah, either one. Yeah. So 
it, it'll be on there. Um, so we, we did capture it. Just wanted to let you guys know that so that you, you'll have access to the slides. So our apologies for that. Um, we are going to close in a song, but would you close us in a word? You bet. Father, thank you so much just for the truth of your word. How grateful we are to have a refuge in this rocky world in which we live that we can run to for safety and security and for answers when the world doesn't make sense. Thank you that you gave us the gospel in your word that reminds us that of the good news, that we can find life uh, through faith alone in Christ alone. And so, uh, Lord, we thank you for just the privilege of studying your word together. Pray that you would use it for your honor and glory, that it would be edifying and encouraging and draw us closer uh, to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.